You are listening to Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement, with your host, Randy Sutton. Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement here on the America Out Loud Network. I'm your host, Randy Sutton. Thanks for joining me again. Well, there's no shortage of topics again this week. The first is really important to talk about, and that is the war on cops. So let's take a walk into the briefing room where I'm going to give you my view from the blue. Anyone who thinks that there is not a war on cops, uh, it's time to rethink that stance. The ambush shootings that have occurred recently are unprecedented in the American law enforcement history. Let's talk about the attack on the two deputies in Los Angeles County. Two deputies, 14 months on the job in Compton, sitting in their patrol car, and they were targeted for assassination. A gunman walked up to them, this is captured on surveillance video, literally walked up to the passenger side of the patrol car and emptied his magazine into the bodies of the male deputy and female deputy. This was a brazen ambush assassination attempt. He shot the female deputy numerous times, including in the face. The male deputy was shot twice in the head and then several more times in the arms and chest area and then ran from the scene, picked up by a vehicle and spurred it off. Clearly a conspiracy, clearly an assassination attempt. The suspect is still at large. What happened next is something that is not being really talked about enough, and that is the heroism of those two deputies. The female deputy, even though she was grievously injured, got on the radio, and this is chilling to hear because the radio traffic was made public. She's trying to call for help. She's trying to advise other officers that they have been shot. And she's calmly saying what is going on, but because of her injuries to her face and jaw, she's very difficult to understand, and yet she's staying calm and reporting, requesting assistance. Then she helps the other injured officer out of the vehicle. They don't know if there is continued attack. And you can see in the surveillance video their warrior spirit in use. They're looking for other assailants. She applies a tourniquet to save the life of her partner, even though she herself is grievously injured. This is what policing has become. Literally every single day worried about being ambushed. Luckily, they survived. Whether they were 
will ever be able to recover from their injuries and lead a full life is something that we do not know. But the cowardly attack should have garnered an amazing amount of respect from the American people. And yet you heard almost nothing about it. But that wasn't the only ambush shooting. Days later, two Arizona State troopers in a unmarked vehicle but in full uniform were targeted for assassination themselves. The individual pulled up next to them, honked the horn, the driver honked the horn, and then a 17-year-old suspect armed with a semi-automatic weapon jumped out of the vehicle, opened fire, shooting into the vehicle numerous times. The detectives opened fire back and the suspect fled. He was apprehended. The second suspect has yet to be identified. But a 17-year-old, feeling emboldened and feeling that they could actually, that he could actually assassinate two officers with no accountability shows what is happening across America. 17 years old, but that's not the only one. A day after that, two more officers in their own home taking care of their one-year-old child in Camden, New Jersey, were subjected to a drive-by shooting. Individuals pulled up to the house, riddled it with bullets, narrowly missing the child, and then quickly driving off. Clearly, another assassination attempt on police officers. This is happening from coast to coast. This is happening all over America. And this is the war on cops. Those who say that there is none are delusional. What's going to happen to America when no one wants to be a cop? That's the question I have to ask. Then there was another attempted assassination. We're, all t- we're talking within a week of each other. And this was a drive-by shooting of a federal courthouse marshal in Phoenix, standing outside the federal courthouse, guarding it because of all the attacks on courthouses across the United States. A subject pulls up, opens fire, striking him in the chest, and only because that security officer who was employed by the marshal's office was wearing a ballistic vest was he saved four ambush attacks on duty and off duty for these officers they're not safe whether they're working they're not safe at home and this is all part of the war on cops now why is this so important a topic Because those who attack law enforcement are doing so because they feel emboldened. They feel empowered. 
And why is that? Because of the current level of hatred and distrust sown by the media and by the left. They actually feel that it's okay to do. There's much more going on across America. Much more going on that is part of the war. Let's talk about something else. Let's talk about another another part of the issues. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi refuses to support law enforcement. She has been completely silent on the attacks, on the killings, on the shootings. Well, there is one representative, Representative Chip Roy of Texas, who gave an incredible speech on the House floor. And what he said was this. Where is the NBA, where is the Speaker of the House, while we're watching law enforcement officers getting attacked? Where are they? This is a really valid question. And it's something that all Americans need to think about as we are coming into an election that will literally change the course of American history. We look at the Biden-Harris or Harris-Biden, whatever you want to call it, ticket, and you see that not only are they silent on the attacks on law enforcement, but actually are helping the attacks. What do I mean when I say that? A bail fund backed by Kamala Harris and Joe Biden staffers have bailed out untold numbers of people who have attacked law enforcement and committed crimes against Americans. Just a fraction of the bail fund that they have put together was actually used on protesters. A bail fund promoted by Democratic Vice Presidential nominee Kamala Harris and many staffers on Joe Biden's campaign helped release an accused child abuser. This individual, a 36-year-old man charged with first-degree criminal sexual conduct for penetrating a girl in 2015 when she was about eight years old. And uh, he was bailed out by this fund operated by Kamala Harris and Joe Biden. So how do you vote for someone who cares so little about the victims of crime and is willing to help criminals escape the criminal justice system and face no consequences. This is something that every American needs to be thinking about. Now, I don't want to say it's all doom and gloom because it's not. I want to, I want to do a shout out here because uh, the Virginia State Police have credited two good Samaritans with saving the life of a state trooper after he was attacked on the side of the road during a traffic stop. Let me tell you about this story because this shows you the bravery of certain Americans who are willing, willing to put their lives on the line for the police. The incident occurred about 11.38 a.m. on September 16th when Virginia State Trooper M.W. Deuce affected a traffic stop on a vehicle. He detected the strong odor of marijuana, got the subject out of the vehicle. As he was 
doing some radio traffic. He saw that the subject threw an object, threw, went into his car and threw an object into the woods. As he went to investigate, the subject attacked him, beat him, tried to take his service weapon, when two good Samaritans saw what was happening, stopped their vehicle, got out to assist. And because of their bravery, because of their determination, they were able to hold the suspect down until backup officers arrived and take him into custody. It's very possible that they saved the life of this trooper. So you see, this is the dichotomy. On one hand, you have people attacking, trying to kill law enforcement officers for absolutely no reason whatsoever. And then you have people like these two good Samaritans who have the guts to stand up, who have the the guts to stand together with law enforcement and actually place their own lives in jeopardy in order to assist. This is the type of story that should be all over the country. And yet, it wasn't. It was in a small article. America needs to wake up. You need to understand that the American law enforcement officer is not your enemy. The American law enforcement officer is there because they believe in the service to the community and they believe in the people that they serve. And I fully believe this, that most Americans believe in and trust their law enforcement. But now is a time when there are there are, are issues and politics at play here that will literally determine the future of our country. America, stand up for your police. Thank you. We've got a great guest waiting for us in the interview room. I love having great guests. I know we were a little disappointed because we've had to push back the Brothers in Blue Bash for a few months because of the COVID insanity. Now, on October 17th, we are still going to have a virtual Brothers in Blue bash, kind of like a tease, and we're going to uh, raise some money. We're going to have some tremendous auction items. So uh, uh, stay listening to uh, this and go to the Facebook page, Brothers in Blue Bash Las Vegas, and get the information there. Now, March 27th, that is a Saturday night here in Las Vegas. The Brothers in Blue Bash, which is going to be the largest celebration of law enforcement, unity, and pride to benefit the Wounded Blue. It's going to be right here in Las Vegas. Got some tremendous, tremendous entertainment lined up for you. There's going to be a, uh, it's going to be a, an event to remember. Fantastic hotel room uh, prices at the Orleans. Just go to the Brothers in Blue Bash uh, Facebook page, and you can uh, make your um, make your reservations there. You can get a table, you can get seats, you can sponsor, all kinds of things. Check it out. Facebook page, Brothers in Blue Bash, Las Vegas. I don't know about you, but if you love coffee, you're going to love Law Dog Coffee. Law Dog Coffee Company. Yes, indeedy. This is amazing coffee. It's been uh, in the family of uh, uh, brewers for 90 years, but this particular brand is, is uh, created just for us. So if you love coffee, you're going to love Law Dog Coffee, especially because not only is it phenomenal coffee, it's, it's uh, uh, roasted in a, in a family-owned roasting company. It's been around for 90 years, 
and it is delicious, but it also goes to help the, uh, the company, Law Dog Coffee Company, gives a percentage of its income to thewoundedblue.org. In fact, they sponsor the Canine Companion Program for the Wounded Blue. So go to lawdogcoffee.com. It gets delivered directly to your house. It is phenomenal, and it tastes so good, it ought to be illegal. America's cities and claims of racism in the ranks of law enforcement have spirited a renewed debate on racial equality. It was Alexis de Tocqueville who reminded us, Americans are so enamored of equality, they would rather be equal in slavery than unequal in freedom. To which I say, be warned of the shiny object, America. AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. Well, it's a fight for the soul of humanity. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa. Award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. With me today in the interview room, Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement, is a cop turned author and uh, a few other things in between. His name is Chris Strom. He's a former United States Marine, retired sergeant with the NYPD Intelligence Division. Chris was recruited by the Joint Improvised Explosive Device Defeat Organization. That, my friends, is a mouthful. A government agency that devised top secret strategies for combating IEDs in Iraq and Afghanistan. And as the lead tactical debriefing officer, he participated in over 110 combat missions and 91 captures of high value targets in Southern Iraq. I appreciate you taking the time to be on the uh, Blue Lives Radio show, Chris. Thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Randy. I really appreciate it. So, you know, you have written a book and, um, we're going to get into that book in, in, in just a minute, but, um, you know, you, you've got a amazing background, uh, and, and the book of the book itself is Brooklyn to Baghdad, which I got to tell you is a really cool title. I like it. Um, let's talk about your, your previous, let's talk about your history with NYPD. First of all. Yeah, back. sure. Yeah. Um, I joined the NYPD in 1987. Uh, and after graduating the academy, um, I went to uh, Brooklyn, uh, hence the title Brooklyn to Baghdad, 
And uh, that makes from sense. There, okay, we're good. <laughs> and I did my field training. And then once I finished that, um, I was transferred over to Queens. And I worked in Queens for uh, 13 years. And uh, I started out on patrol like most folks do. And then from there, after uh, about seven years, I worked my way up into anti-crime, which uh, people may or may not know in your audience is uh, basically a plainclothes unit. Uh, and they address uh, violent street felonies. Uh, and you drive a smooth car. Uh, and you have uh, irregular hours. It's really not a nine-to-five job. It's um, basically geared toward whatever the crime stats are, 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 are projecting in the precinct. So if there's a robbery pattern or, or um, you know, uh, a theft pattern or, or whatever it might be, that's how the hours would be uh, 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 sent out to you, and that would be the hours that you would work. Uh, from there, I did that for about two years, and I was involved in a shooting. And then after the shooting um, – which was justified in all that, uh, they decided to laterally promote me into basically what they call a robbery task force. And now instead of just working uh, primarily in the precinct of the 101, I had seven different precincts to work in, which encompassed almost 50 square miles. So I'm basically doing the same thing, but now there's a direct focus on uh, robberies and guns. And at the time, uh, this was during the um, the late 90s, the, you know, crack was still around and there was a lot of carjackings going on as well. So that would fit into a robbery also because hence the taking of the car by force or, or whatever. And from there I got promoted to Sergeant and I'm back in Brooklyn <laughs> and I'm in a great precinct called the seven, six precinct, which um, uh, is nestled between the uh, Brooklyn battery tunnel and the uh, Brooklyn bridge. And it uh, bats up against the, uh, uh, on the western side on the uh, East River. So you're looking directly at lower Manhattan uh, from the precinct and you have the, you know, the, 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 uh, uh, the, the bridge, uh, you know, that's so storied and famous, you know, at night when it's lit up and things like that. So as a backdrop. I like, and, I like uh, the word nestled. It's nestled yeah. between. <laughs> that's, a write, that's a writer's word, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's, and, 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 and I, I tell you, I, it was actually geographically further than some precincts in the Bronx from where I lived uh, with my wife in uh, Nassau County. And um, I get there and now um, I'm back in uniform and I'm on patrol and the, the captain calls me into his office one day and basically asked me if you'd be interested in doing the street narcotics enforcement within the precinct. So again, I'm back in plain clothes and I'm working with a bunch of phenomenal people. Um, it's like the United Nations of guys and girls, different ethnic backgrounds. And uh, now we're basically focused on uh, uh, arresting people for uh, narcotics violations, selling, uh, possessing, uh, transfer and things like that. We're doing search warrants and I'm having a great time. And um, probably about a year into it, 9-11 um, happens and um, everything shifted back. Uh, we were no longer doing SNU. Uh, street narcotics enforcement. We were back in a patrol capacity, you know, and as you might imagine, you know, people in the city are pretty hypersensitive and, you know, any, any little bump in the night really kind of got people on edge. And uh, I did that for probably, I guess, probably about six months. And then things kind of went back to normal. I started doing, we started this new team back up again. I had the same uh, group of guys and girls and we all got, you know, got together and we started doing that again. And, um, because of 9-11, there, there was a demand, actually, for people to go into the intelligence division. And, and the same captain had, who had asked me to do the narcotics is now asking me to go into the intelligence division. And I'm saying to myself, 
I really don't want to go because I'm having a great time. I got steady days off and I have a great group of guys and girls and I'm really enjoying life and I'm making overtime. And I, you know, it's, I'm like, how is life going to get any better than this? And, um, but I ended up eventually going into uh, the intelligence division and, you know, it, it was, it was an eye opener for me to be sure. Um, it was something that what, was what totally was your, foreign to what me. What was your assignment in the, uh, in the intelligence division? Well, I started out as a field, uh, field intelligence officer, but um, from that, they moved me to what they call the leads desk. And uh, once I got into the leads desk, um, I basically took anything that required a live response. So the things that you would see on television where there's an explosion in a subway uh, station, there is um, um, a suspicious package, um, you know, anything that could possibly have a nexus to terrorism. That's what that's what I was involved in, and um, Got it. okay, I was working with, again with a bunch of amazing people that made me look like a superstar, and um, you know I'm I'm having a great time and learning a lot as I go. I'm actually learning more from these people I think than they were learning from me, to be quite honest. And um, but you know uh, these investigations, some of them were very short term, and some were very long term, which required surveillance and the introduction of confidential informants, and um, and there was some heavy competition. Uh, and some, uh, I would call rivalry, uh, friendly and not so friendly at times between um, the JTTF or the Joint Terrorism Task Force, which was in lower Manhattan. And um, so we would get jobs if, if it wasn't alive in progress. I went to all the jobs that were alive in progress, anywhere in the city, didn't matter. It was in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, uh, or even beyond um, New York City itself. Um, but then there were other jobs that would come down basically as a notification similar to like an email and you required an actual door knock. And, you know, I had great, like I said, I had great guys and girls working for me. So that was never an issue. And we would go out and, you know, 90% of the time or, or sometimes more, sometimes less, you know, it was just somebody's healthy paranoia. Uh, but every now and then, you know, it's like, Hey, you know, they got, got some strange activity, people coming and going, you know, at all hours of the night. Oh, and then by the way, I think they're middle Eastern or I think they're Muslim or whatever. And again, this is, not the police conducting the surveillance. This is a self-generated lead coming from the public. This has nothing to do with the police seeking out one group versus another. And, uh, and again, probably 80-90% of the time was nothing, but every now and then it turned out to be something, and now you have a full-blown investigation, and now the problem becomes uh, how long are we going to hold on to this? Uh, what, what steps are being taken? Um, it requires a lot of, obviously, report, report writing and oversight, and also, you know, briefings, because if it's a case that has any kind of prominence to it, um, my supervisor, who was uh, at the time uh, Inspector Mara, uh, Vinnie Mara, who actually wrote the forward to the book, um, and I had, a, you know, a chief, uh, you know, two chiefs, that a chief Carter and a chief Tiffany, and, you know, and they want to know what's going on, along with the deputy commissioner of, of Intel, which at the time was a guy that was a CIA uh, guy for 36 years, a fellow by the name of Dave Cohen. So um, everybody's knows your business and they want to know what you're doing to make this problem go away or solve this problem. So this, this is all based on terrorism. Yes. So, okay. So, so of course this is the post nine 11 era where the world changed for law enforcement, especially in the city of New York. Absolutely. Um, so how many, uh, how many years did you do total? I did uh, just over 20, 20 years, one month. And I think like three days, something like that. So, Right, it was what, 20, almost 20 on the button. <laughs> so why did you retire? Well, I had an opportunity and I had a decision to make. I was, um, 
I was working 14 hour days pretty much for five years straight. Um, most weekends I had at least one day to myself off. Sometimes I didn't have uh, both days. Um, and I was, I was getting tired and my kids were at a point where I had to make a decision. Was I going to stay another whole year because of the school year? I didn't want to pull them out in the middle of a school year or was I going to take retirement? And I had an also, uh, an opportunity to go into business, uh, in Roanoke, Virginia, which is where I live now, uh, doing construction, which is something that I actually like doing. And I'd like to think I'm pretty good at it. And, um, I decided to take, take the retirement. And uh, just so you know, uh, <laughs> I got the gold ring. I got the, uh, I got the plaque. Uh, I had a great uh, retirement party, which is a complete surprise. And uh, the same people that I speak very fondly of that I you know, keep in touch with to this day, uh, we're all present and accounted for. And it was, it was really a beautiful moment in my life. I won't forget. So what, what brought you to, I mean, at, at, at some point, uh, not far down the road, you're, you took a different path, a path that took you to the Middle East. Tell us about that. Well, the, the business I was involved with had a partner, and uh, he had a way of wanting to do things that was different from mine, and I'm sure he felt the same way about me, and we parted ways. And now I'm, I'm suddenly unemployed. Now, I, I mean, I'm blessed I get a pension from New York City. So it's not like I'm destitute and I don't have any money coming in, but you know, I'm 48 years old and I can't sit around the house. I have to do something. And so my wife took my application and started filling out jobs. And meanwhile, I'm doing odd jobs around my own house, uh, like things like painting. And uh, the phone rings one day and it's a, a, a gentleman from uh, MPRI, which was Military uh, Professional Resources International. And um, it, apparently, one of the applications I had filled out was for a law enforcement professional. And um, the guy on the phone uh, describes to me the job. And I said, I'm interested, but I said, I just want to run it back, you know, run it by my wife because I'm going to be gone for a year. It required a one year commitment. And um, after talking to my wife, my wife's like, what are you crazy? This is right up your alley. This is what you do. This is what you, you love to do. And, and um, so that's kind of like how that part of the, uh, of the, the transition to Iraq started. Okay, so I want to I want for I want my uh, my listeners to know that this is a little known part of law enforcement and military uh, history. That during this time period, uh, a, a, a a military contracting position kind of opened up, and it was called LEP, the Law Enforcement Professional. Just talk about that for a moment, and then where that led you. Well, yeah. I, so the job was a LEP uh, initially. And basically what I was going to do was uh, go to Iraq and get uh, situated at a command somewhere in Iraq. And, and as it turned out, it was in Baghdad where I was going to be going. And um, the, the essence of the job was basically to look at the insurgency as a criminal enterprise. And how would you go about solving this problem? How would you break down um, these cells and things like that. And I would be like basically an advisor uh, to the colonel or his staff in the, in the G2 or the S2 rather. So that's how it initially started. So I go to this uh, training, which is a, basically an orientation for three weeks uh, in Lansdowne, Virginia. And I'm there about, I guess, probably about 10 days. And the program manager summons me to his office and it's me uh, myself rather, and uh, two other gentlemen. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, 
are, are they firing me or did I do something wrong? Because I can't imagine why they're just calling me. Uh, I'm with a group of about uh, 30 people. And it turns out he starts briefing me on this other project, which is separate and apart from the law enforcement professional position. And it has to do with actually being embedded with soldiers and doing combat missions and actually uh, doing basically like uh, interrogations on the spot um, as opposed to sitting in an office and looking at, you know, data and, and things that probably, you know, some people are very equipped to do, but that's really not my specialty. And uh, they asked me if I'm interested. And I said, I'm very interested. And they said, okay, well, you've got a meeting tomorrow morning and we need you to go down to uh, Crystal, uh, Reston, Virginia, to Crystal City, and you'll get briefed there further on the actual operation. So I'm like, okay. And I go down there, and uh, the briefing is being conducted by an Australian major who's part of this Triado mission. And uh, he tells me about it, and I'm like, I'm in. <laughs> okay, wait a minute. I mean, uh, like, what, uh, what mission? The, it, he tells me about the mission, about exactly what we'll be doing as opposed to the previous position, which was, you know, I guess at times could be exciting and very dangerous. This one was very much different. This was at right at the point of capture. I uh, would be with a group of other special forces operators that were retired. And we would wear the identical uniforms as the actual army, identical weaponry. And we would be going out and actually grabbing these people, busting through their door at three o'clock in the morning. And then once the house was secure, I would take this guy most times into the bathroom and I would talk to him, try and positively identify who this person was. And once I was able to do that, um, work, working through the interrogation process, trying to identify other outstanding members of his cell. So, so okay, I, you know, this is, to me, this is fascinating. You go from being a street cop and then a detective investigating intelligence matters. Suddenly you find yourself in a position to take a job that you are going to be away from your family for a year in one of the most dangerous places on earth. And you're going to be kicking in doors and talking to terrorists. Is that about right? That, that's pretty much it. And I, and I would imagine if uh, some psychologist was sitting in on this interview she would probably be having a field day with my, with some of the things I've been saying. So, <laughs> and the, might, and the rationale might be right. it probably, you know, so. Okay. So but yeah, that's what did the, what did the training consist of to go over there? Oh my goodness. I went to three months of intense training. Uh, it started the very first school was um, a two week course in um, actually a three week course. I take it back on explosives and identifying uh, trigger mechanisms and IEDs and components. And from there, we went to uh, Aberdeen, Maryland, and we actually went to what they call a live range and we blew things up. And then we had to reconstruct the scene, almost like a crime scene, put the pieces back together. And we would have to present our PowerPoint, which con consisted of no more than seven or eight slides of why it is that you felt that this was the trigger device, what was the explosive that was used and things like that. And, um, it was very, very intense. And the people that put it on was a, it was a company actually out of Ireland called Hazardous Management Solutions, HMS. And uh, they were switched on and they were great. And then from there, uh, I go to Albuquerque, New Mexico, and I'm there for about five weeks. And I'm doing everything from shooting to driving cars to first aid um, and, you know, on and on and on. And it's, uh, 
I'm saying to myself, is this ever going to end? Like, are we ever going to get, you know, wheels up and get into Iraq? Because there's a lot of nervous uh, anticipation, as you might imagine. So. So, so you're, you know, when you went through the police academy, you were like 21 years old, right? Uh, yes, correct. Uh, okay, correct. So, so now you're close to 50 and you're going through all of this high speed stuff. Uh, that had to be pretty challenging. It, w- it was, you know, the, the, the advantage I had actually uh, was being a former Marine. So I've always kind of maintained a, a high level of fit, physical fitness. And I'm not saying that to pat myself on the back, even to this day, that's what I do. So th- that part saved me. Um, but now you're working alongside um, all these special forces operator. And, and some of them are, are in really good shape and some of them not so much. You know, it's like a mixed bag. But, you know, one of the things that they're very good at is shooting. Um, and they love to shoot and they love to do, you know, close quarter battle, you know, breaking down doors, clearing a room and all these other things. And that's great. But their communication skills and being able to gather human intelligence from people, not so much. So um, hence, hence the reason that you were brought in and hired. I, I'd like to think so. <laughs> I, I, okay. I mean, okay. So, so you get you get done with your training and then it's time for actual deployment. Tell me about that. Well, we were stationed actually at Fort Hood, um, and we're trying to get a, a plane to get out. We, we actually flew over on a C, uh, C-17 or C-117, C-17. And um, we're sitting around, and we're now we're, we're just killing time, and we're doing more things. We're going over weapons. We're checking our weapons. We're loading things on a pallet, breaking them down, basically busy work, going back to the range again. I mean, like, I think I had a callus on my index finger on my right hand. I really, I'm not even exaggerating. And finally they say, we're going to go. And it's the night of the Super Bowl, And we're all saying, there's no way we're leaving tonight. No air force crew is going to man a plane, a C-17 and fly us over to Iraq on Super Bowl uh, Sunday. But sure enough, that's what they did. And they flew us over on the day of the Super Bowl. In fact, the giants were playing and they actually won if I'm not mistaken. So, <laughs> so all right so you get to iraq and uh, uh what happens after you get there well there's a lot of sitting around um actually we stopped over in kuwait we were there for about probably about 10 days um which seemed like an eternity and from there from kuwait we actually get to iraq and now what's happening is even though this is a government sanctioned program um, we're being met with some resistance by big army. Uh, they're not too keen about having uh, 40 some odd year old men, you know, running around in Southern Baghdad, um, you know, getting in their rice bowl, so to speak. And so there was a long time of buy-in on this, on this process. And during the, during the buy-in process, some, some mistakes were made by some of the people on my team. Now I want to be clear about this. There was two separate iterations, not for me, but the team itself had actually gone through three different, uh, iterations of personnel. Uh, I stayed with the team for 15 months. So I, I was part of the original team. But the first team that we had, um, they made some mistakes and they really didn't do a good job ingratiating themselves with the Army. And hence that, they were very reluctant to use us. So, you know, every once in a while, they'd bring us out in broad daylight and we'd go to a, an empty Mohalla, which is basically an Iraqi village that was completely abandoned looking for unexploded uh, ordnance, which was really mind-numbing and really useless. Um, but so, eventually so, what happened... So what you're saying is that even though uh, you're, you're a highly trained unit with experienced 
special operators, the politics of war uh, entered, entered into this uh, equation. Absolutely. Absolutely. hundred percent. And if you look at in terms, I, I give this analogy to people, you know, I know what I know. I don't think I'm a doctor. I don't think I'm a plumber, but when you finally call the plumber or you go to see the doctor, it's probably not a good idea to tell the doctor or the plumber how to do a shop. It's probably not a good idea to stand over that person's shoulder moreover and tell them how to do their job. But that is the problem initially. And that is the mindset that you have to overcome with the army because they're like dinosaurs. They just are not good with change. And they really believe, uh, and I listen, I want to be clear about this also. Nobody loves the soldier more than me. There are people right now, I, I mean, that, in fact, the guy that that's, I speak very highly about, his name is Sergeant Dave Peluso and, and Adoni Paletica. Adoni ran our team, and Sergeant Dave was, was the, uh, the uh, platoon sergeant for 122 TST, which we probably did 90% of all our missions, all, all of our combat missions outside the wirewood, because the level of confidence and familiarity and knowing that, you know, we had each other's back um, was something that was unspoken. And I'm very, I actually went to... Sergeant Dave's retirement party um, in February of 2019. So I'm very close with these people to this day. I talk to them all the time. But having said that, to win these people over to think, hey, we actually are here to help you, is a, is a, tough, is a tough road to hope. It really is. So what, once, you got, once you actually got in country, now you're in Iraq, and um, how many combat missions did you actually do? I did 110 documented. And I had, I don't even know how many interrogations. I, I, if I had to guess how many interrogations I did based upon the capture sheet, because there's, there's a metrics and there's a data and the reports that I wrote, I probably interrogated over 200 people uh, during, the, during the course of that. It's probably higher than that, um, but um, it, it's, it's one of these things where you go through the house and you start talking to people. And not every, every time you hit a house are you going to get joined, meaning the, the principal target may or may not be there or he might be a traveler, he might be mobile, he might not actually, he may have been there at one point in time, but by the time you get, you know, spooled up into your truck and geared up and drive a half hour, 45 minutes to an hour away, he's no longer there. Now all you have is the mother and the father and maybe a couple brothers and an uncle. But the guy that you really want has already, he's gone. But of the people- Are we talking about, are we talking about really high level, when I say high level, we're talking about violent terrorists. These are bomb makers. These are bomb makers. Bomb makers. Are, they're either bomb makers, bomb implant, uh, emplacers, uh, financiers, or safe house providers. But make no mistake about it. They're all part of the insurgency. They're not shoplifters at Walmart. These are bad people. Bad people. Killing soldiers. So I, I know that you're a former police officer. Uh, I know the police are getting a, having a tough go of it right now. But believe me, when it comes to hurting a soldier – or hurting a cop, to me, they're synonymous. And, uh, you know, when you know that that's what you're going to do or what you're up against trying to achieve, the amount of adrenaline and drive is, is, is incredible to, to make sure that you do the best job you can to wrap this guy up and, and make his day miserable for the rest of his life. When you, when you came across one of these suspects um, and you interrogated him, you, you got the information that you needed to get from them, then what did you do with them? Well, that's, that's, a, that's a very good question. Um, I, I just want to go back because it's related to what you're, what you're asking. 
uh, the biggest problem for the Army, and I'm not knocking the Army because, again, like I said, I love the, I love the soldiers, but their methodology and their way of approaching a problem is, so, is sometimes challenging in and of itself. But the, the way it used to be before we got there, before the Phoenix team got in country, their biggest challenge was getting what they call positive identification. So you're given a target package, and this kid is 18 years old, and he's looking at this, and he's trying to digest some analyst work, which, by the way, is probably not based on human intelligence. It's probably all electronic sig signature or some type of surveillance, and I'm not going to get into the, the granular details. But you're asking the 18- or 19-year-old kid to go interrogate some 40-some-odd-year-old man, and he doesn't speak the same language, and culturally, that's, that's a no-go because they're insulted that somebody younger is even talking to them to begin with, which is a oh, whole other separate – Interesting. Yeah, which is, which is a whole separate issue altogether. So now the biggest challenge is, like I said, can they positively identify this guy? Well, if the soldier that's doing the interviewing or interrogating believes that it is, now he's got to convince his first sergeant, and that first sergeant's got to convince either a second or a first lieutenant that this is actually the guy. Now, the Army is very risk-adverse, meaning that they're not going to – if you're not 100% sure that this is Billy Joe bad guy – we're not taking him. A lot of times they would just leave that guy for the sake of just being wrong. I can see, Switching. I can see a million problems with that. Oh, I, oh, you, you, really? There, yeah, there's a lot of problems with that. So now fast forward, the, the team is here. You have people that have experience. I like to think that I'm pretty good at what I do. I think my success rate is clearly better than an 18 or a 19 year old kid doing this interview or an interrogation. And now I'm winning this guy and I'm breaking him down. And he's not only telling me, okay, you got me and through either the interrogation or physical evidence that's recovered inside the house that basically just collapses his whole story and ties him to this insurgency. But now he's willing to give me another person in, in this whole, you know, uh, insurgency in this whole cell. So I've gone to as many as four different targets in one night uh, based on information that each person told me along the way which before we got a country, that, that was unheard of. That would never happen. In fact, so much so that, like I said, they did either one or the other. They either could, weren't sure who this person was in terms of positive identification, and they left, or they, they were reasonably satisfied it was him. They took him, and they were happy with that, and they went right back to the base and put him in the detention holding facility. So, okay, you, we, I, I have so many questions. One of the first is, how do you communicate with them? You don't speak the language. No, I don't speak. No, but, you know, I had, I had uh, great interpreters working with me. Um, and, you know, I'm used to work. When you, when you work in New York City, you come across a lot of people with a lot of different languages, Spanish, a lot. I mean, Chinese, Russian, you name it. And uh, if I needed an, uh, uh, an interpreter, you know, those resources were available. So there is a little bit of a learning curve but you're so switched on with adrenaline and you're burning so much of a hole in this guy's forehead by looking at him that it, it really, after you get into a flow and a rhythm with your actual interpreter, if he's a good one, and I had amazing interpreters, um, it, the, the delay is so minuscule, it doesn't, become, it doesn't really become a factor. Interesting, interesting. All right, so, so you, you, you wrote a book. You, you wrote a book from Brooklyn to Baghdad um, and you're recounting your experiences. But, you know, people write books for a host of reasons. What was, why did you write this book? I, I wrote this book because, you know, for, you know, 
whether you agree with the Iraq war or you disagree or Afghanistan, all those things, I don't really care about that. But my, my whole philosophy is it's like if you're going to play a football game, you don't come there to lose. You come there to win. And the Army was basically what was happening was the team that I was a part of was so successful that we were starting to round up people that had relationships either directly with the ministry of, of the Iraqi government, very high up. Uh, they had existing relationships with the commanding officers of some of the army people, and they had relationships with the CIA and FBI. So now you have all these competing entities, and, you know, and I'll just make this as, as, as simplistic as possible. You have 10 people in a cell, and you've rounded up seven, and you want to get the last three, and they're not letting you get the last three. Because why? Well, why is a crooked letter, my wife would say. You know, because they, because they have some agenda, some criteria, something that's going to make them look bad. And by the way, you know, when I find a love letter that's written, written by a colonel uh, to, to an Iraqi woman who's running a safe house from the United States to Iraq, uh, you know, if that had been an enlisted soldier that had done that, he'd be, he'd be getting um, court-martialed, okay? So that's just like one of the things that we're up against. You have all these people with different agendas and different reasons why they don't want you to have complete success. They actually limit your success of the mission of closing the loop on these people. That and by the way, be incredibly frustrating. Oh, the frustration level is, is, is out of control. And I mean, because I'm a sore loser. I mean, I'm going to, I'm just going to be honest. Uh, I don't mind losing if I lose because I failed myself. Uh, and I, but knowing I did the best I could, but when I lose, because somebody's not letting me go that one extra step, that's incredibly frustrating. It's terrible. So in, in other words, there was basically you found corruption within the army and the methodologies that they used to stop you from doing your job. That's correct. Uh, we, uh, I'll give you an example. We were going out and doing raids, and one of the groups that we were uh, coming across was a group called Menza, which is the Ministry of, of National Security and Affairs. And basically, that's the equivalent of like the CIA or the FBI on the American side. And that organization didn't even exist until we got in country, meaning the, the U.S. forces and coalition forces. And that organization was stood up by the CIA and the FBI to form an intelligence organization within their, within their own country. Now, I, I don't want to get too far down the road or in the weeds with history lesson, but Saddam Hussein was, was you know, a, was, was a Sunni. We now shifted over and brought in imported al-Maliki, who's a Shiite. And the, the, the country now is being run by Shiites, and they don't like the Sunnis. In fact, neither, they don't like each other, but they are basically taking it, all their aggression and all their frustration because now there's been a power dime shift, and they're in charge. So basically what happened was when this, when this Sunni, uh, excuse me, the Shiite organization got in troll, control of the intelligence uh, uh, services of the, of the Iraqi government, they were basically raping, killing, murdering, extorting, and displacing the Sunnis from their own home, all under the legitimate auspices of the Iraqi government. And so as we're exploiting this cell, I'm coming across, you know, all this evidence and these people have, at some point in time, uh, one of the people that I had interrogated was actually a doctor. Now, I don't know if he was a medical doctor or a PhD doctor, but he claimed to be a doctor. Uh, he had bona fide identification from this organization, and we were going to do a raid on one of their 
non-disclosed, uh, nondescript uh, offices, which was in southern Baghdad. And we had planned out this operation for over, over a month. And we get, get ready to pull the trigger. And the next thing you know, the guy that's running the team is telling us the mission's been uh, canceled. I go, what do you mean it's been canceled? We've been planning this, going to briefings and meetings. That's another thing the Army's great about, uh, it, it, which there are some parallels with the NYPD as well. Uh, they love to have meetings. People love to talk at these meetings. And, you know, you're thinking that there's going to be some joy that finally we're going to, you know, take these people down that have been killing it, killing these, uh, their, their own citizenry. And, and it's not to be, not to be. Well, so I, this is fascinating stuff. Um, so let's, uh, let's talk about how people can get your book. Well, the book is uh, available on amazon.com. Uh, it's at Barnes and Noble. Uh, Target uh, has it, and um, I'm pretty sure Walmart has it too. So, um, or they can they can just go on Brooklyn to Baghdad, and they'll they'll see uh, all kinds of information pop up uh, about the book, reviews, um, all, all all types of information. Fantastic. So, Chris, I I I, I can't wait to read the book myself. Uh, Chris Trom, the uh, uh, you're a retired NYPD. And, uh, and, and went back for more, which, which I gotta, I gotta give you, I gotta give you got a lot of credit for from Brooklyn to Baghdad, find it on amazon.com and, uh, stores everywhere. I appreciate you taking the time to be on blue lives radio, the voice of American law enforcement. Thank you so much, Randy. I appreciate it very much. One of the most important things that you can do as either a, a law enforcement officer, someone who supports law enforcement, is to help injured and disabled officers. How? By simply going to this website, www.thewoundedblue.org. Thewoundedblue.org. And why should you do that? Well, first of all, because I founded the organization. Do you need any more than that, really? So this organization provides tremendous assistance and support to officers who've been injured either physically or emotionally in the line of duty. Uh, we have a phenomenal um, documentary film. If you go to Amazon.com and look at uh, The Wounded Blue, Service, Sacrifice, Betrayed. Also on uh, YouTube, if you go to our YouTube channel, Wounded Blue TV, check out our series, The Voices of the Blue. You want to do everything you can to help these men and women who sacrificed so much for their communities. Go to www.thewoundedblue.org. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to listen to Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement, here on the America Out Loud Network with your host, Randy Sutton. A couple things. If you want to contact me, go to Facebook, the voice of American law enforcement, on Twitter, I'm at LT Randy Sutton. I look forward to hearing from you. And remember to support the men and women of the law enforcement profession by going to www.thewoundedblue.org and help any way you can. Thanks again. We'll see you next time.